You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany Sermon Series, Prison Poems, Citizens of Joy in Circumstance of Suffering. In this series from Paul's letter to the Philippians, we learn how to press into the source of true joy, citizenship in heaven through our union with Christ. Will you all stand with me as we hear the word of the Lord together? You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and at a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, to, be God. to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, sojourn. Peace be, peace be with you. <laughs> the, I'm still getting used to the uh, hearing my voice in the mic in the mains. Um, I'll tell you guys. Well, my name's Jonah. I think I, I think I know everybody. Hi, I don't know you guys. Sorry, this is super weird because there's nobody here, and now you stick out. I'm sorry, you wouldn't normally stick out. Um, I confirmed this isn't being recorded, so I can speak more freely with you guys. I'm used to being in front of the camera and on the podcast and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the 11 o'clock service the last few weeks has been so strange. Uh, usually everybody comes to the 11 o'clock service, historically, and now everybody comes to the 9 o'clock service. The 9 o'clock service, we were talking about open up rows, and uh, so I feel weird being up here with the loudspeakers and, uh, you know, just a couple of us. feel like we should be in the living room, but we'll see what happens. Feel free to respond. What's good? My man, Mr. Bradshaw. Uh, Felix saying hi to everybody. What's up, Judah? Good to see you, buddy. Uh, yeah. So, such strange times. Uh, such strange times that we are living in. Uh, but I'm, uh, I was almost overcome this morning hearing drums. We haven't had drums or organ in the church in a long time. So Phil Turner's here somewhere. Steve Marsh is back on the drum, or not on the drums. I bet, I bet Steve could play drums. But uh, yeah, so much of life seems to be these... Uh, uh, seemingly opposite emotions that we have to learn how to hold together at the same time. So excited to be back. And it still feels a little bit weird, but I'm glad to be weird with you guys. Uh, so here we go, right? Like, well, who, if you can't be weird with Christians, where can you be weird? Um, so uh, yeah, we've been in this uh, series through Philippians called Prison Poems, Citizens of Joy in Circumstances of Suffering. And the, the text that was just read for us so well by Deacon Kristen Gillis, is where we got the name for the series, because verses 6 through 11 are, in fact, a prison poem. Uh, or, to put it another way, a poem that was written while Paul was in prison, physically chained to another human being. Uh, more words have been written about this section from Paul than any of his other writings, uh, because we're not really sure all of what it is. Is it a hymn? Is it a poem? Uh, is it meant to be theology? Is it meant to be performance art? So there's a few things that are not debated about it. Uh, the, the first thing is that it's structured beautifully. Uh, anybody into grammar? Anybody? No? One? One? Okay, a couple teachers in the back. Slate run gators. Let's do it. All right, Ireland. Okay. 
Uh, so pretty much any commentary you get on Philippians will go through this if you're into grammar, the least little bit. But the structure of it is, it's really, it's really magnificent. There's rhythm to it. Uh, there's patterns in it. Um, you can go study that for yourself if you'd like. But the point is, pretty much everybody who has written or thought about Philippians vocationally agrees that the structure of it is, is really something. Um, second, it's more than just a logical argument. Uh, one of the things about Paul, if you've read any of his writings, they can be pretty straightforward to follow because of this, then this, then this, and it's just a real kind of easy pattern to work through. But there's something beyond just the, the rational, logical argumentation happening here. Um, again, to be a little bit nerdy for you guys, the original language it's written in, it has rhythm. Um, it moves and it alliterates. Maybe you've seen someone stand up dramatically and read the King James version of the Bible and it just stirs you. It's, it's more than just the information. So the King James translation pays a little bit more attention to the rhythm and the cadence of the scriptures. And so here in the Greek that Paul is writing in, again, it rhymes, it alliterates and was tended... There's an agreement that it's, there's something more than just the logical theological argument that Paul is making here. And so third, the kind of conclusion of this is everyone seems to agree that Paul is after something emotional here. He's trying to stir something in us, desires, longings. And I think the reason for that is, is pretty straightforward. We all get this. Desire is the language of love and the language of change. And this is true both in positive ways and in negative ways, because y'all, there's enough of us in here, y'all ever want something so bad and suddenly you find a way to get it. Uh, when you want something bad enough, you're willing to make these changes or shift things, and when it gets sideways, even maybe to do something unethical or something you know you shouldn't do because you want this other thing so bad. So regardless if it has a positive or a negative outcome, desire and longing is what fuels human ch transformation. So Paul is after something deep here, emotional, affectionate, to stir our desires and our longings. Uh, the section starts with another command that's rooted back in the thesis statement of Philippians from chapter 1. So chapter 1, verse 27 says, you must live as a citizen of heaven. And this is, again, it's grammatically connected, it's related. So he begins this section in verse 5 saying, you have to have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. So be like Jesus. Remember the Be Like Mike campaign? Everybody gets the things I'm going to tell you guys. Uh, he's saying imitate Jesus. See what he's like and try to become that. Um, imitation is one of the clearest pathways to our own change and, and transformation. His ultimate aim for us, Paul's ultimate aim, is for us to experience something, um, more specifically experience the joy that is ours in Christ. Not just to uh, confess it or to talk about it. And again, you all, you all know this. Would you rather hear me lecture you for the next three hours about what it's like to be at Disney World, or would, we, would you rather me give you an all-expense-paid trip to Disney World? Right? We would rather go to Disney than hear a lecture about it. Uh, we, I'd preached on the glory of God a few years ago. Some, some of you might have been here. And I intentionally gave this long, boring history lesson on the origin of the chocolate chip cookie. And I said, would you rather hear more about the chocolate chip cookie or would you rather eat a chocolate chip cookie? And everybody basically booed me and was like, eat the cookie, we want cookies, not history. And we had a member come out 
who had made 500 chocolate chip cookies. And everybody was like, oh my gosh, you know, you think I was giving up bars of gold or something. We know this. We want to experience something more than we just want to know the truth of something. This section is teaching us something that everyone already knows. Imitation leads to transformation. And he's in, Paul is inviting us to imitate the way of Christ that we might experience something and be transformed. And again, uh, perhaps at the sake of being redundant, you all know this already, and you all already do this in your life. Even, even the kids in the room, you guys are already doing this. I'll, I'll give you one, one quick example of how this plays out in an ordinary way. Um, a couple of months ago, my wife asked my son to do something. It was the kind of thing you ask a six-year-old to do. It wasn't like, go fix the sewage line in the front yard, or it's just something small and ordinary. Hey, put the Paw Patrol toys away in your room. And my son was on the ground coloring. Uh, he's doing something. He was on the ground with his head down drawing. I don't know if he was coloring or drawing, whatever. And she said, hey, you know, can you go do this for me? And without picking his head up, he, he shouts, heck no! <laughs> and listen, no one talks to mama that way in my house, Okay. Uh, and so I put on my dad voice. You, you dads know what that is. There's a tone, there's a tenor of your voice that you turn on when you really, we want to put just a little bit of fear in the child. And I said, excuse me, young man, you do not speak to my wife that way. He got real. And then I said, amen, amen right? Listen, kids, that's one, of the, that's one of the Ten Commandments. Which one is that? Anybody? It's okay. Obey your mother and father honor them really, but you know what I'm saying. So I said, you don't talk to my wife at that moment. She stopped being his mom and became my wife. I said, don't talk to my wife that way. And then out of curiosity, because we're always worried, like, is he watching the wrong shows or are we not monitoring Netflix tightly enough or whatever? And I said, and where'd you learn to say something like that anyway? And from the other side of the house, which I have a small house, so it's like, you know, eight steps away, my daughter shouts out, you say it all the time, dad right? Busted. Cold as ice from my own daughter. Couldn't even have the decency to pull me aside and tell me in private. And just to be clear, I say, heck no, all the time. I don't tell my wife, heck no, just to be perfectly clear on that. The point stands, though. My kids were imitating me, and it was transforming them. They saw me do something. They want to be like dad, by virtue of me being their father, and so they started acting like me. This is why, if you're a parent, this is why you're afraid of your kids falling into the wrong crowd. We all know this. You become like the people you spend time with. That's why it's so crucially important who we spend our time with. If you want to know who you'll be like in the next five years, just look at who are you spending the most amount of time with, and you, all, you will become more and more like them. Um, we become what we love, who we desire to be. Sons become their fathers in so many ways. Daughters become their mothers in so many ways. Uh, because as children, we do what they do, and we look to them as the ideal image of what a father or a mother or a husband or a wife or a man or a woman, that sets in our bones what we think this should be. And that's, you know, that's that's one reason why many of us continue patterns of brokenness, even when we long to be different. You, I get you, Mose. I, sometimes I want to just cry out in church like that, too. Don't be ashamed, Meg. Don't be ashamed. Um, it's like, y'all, we don't have to do crowd participation. There's not enough people in here for that. It's too uncomfortable. Uh, you can, I suppose, if you want. But you ever, you ever done something 
that you knew you shouldn't do and, and there was even a part of you that you, you didn't want to do? And anybody else battling ice cream addiction during the last, you know, whatever, three and a half, four months? Amen. My quarantine 15 has decided to be an overachiever. I think I'm going for my quarantine 25. Uh, my pants still fit though. Hey! <laughs> you know? And so I know I don't want to keep eating ice cream. I know it won't get me where I want to go or who I want to be. And yet there I am praying over my graders that the Lord would be merciful to me or whatever, drive them to berry twist. And many of us continue patterns of brokenness even when we long to be different, even when we know that shouldn't be, that's not who we want to be uh, because we've imitated somebody or something and saw them as the ideal and this stuff gets deep into our bones. Paul is reminding us that imitation leads to transformation. So he's commanding us to imitate Christ. He knows we have all these images in our minds, the pull of the powerful, the influential. He knows that we all have it in us. We all have a longing to imitate And so, in his chains, physically chained to another human being, he invites us to cast our eyes to Jesus. He appeals to us in emotionally charged, poetic language, straining to help us see the beauty of our king so that we might desire to be like him, long to be like him. So, he begins this poem in verse 6 by saying, though he was God. And we have to pause there. This will be the last theological point I make. Um, It's vitally important. So, Jesus was not just a good teacher. He wasn't an ethical teacher or a philosopher. He wasn't just a really good man. He was God himself, fully God and fully human. He was not like Adam in the sense that he was just made in the image of God or created by God to be similar to God in some ways. We could translate this verse having the very nature of God or the form of God. So this is Paul asserting, reminding us clearly that Jesus is God himself. He's not a creation of God or, you know, a gift of God in the sense of like, here's this little extra side bonus. Jesus, when you think God and you think Jesus, it's the same thing. Jesus is God. So he says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. So in some ways, Philippi, where this letter was originally written to, uh, it's kind of like the California of the ancient world, or maybe like Manhattan or something. Everybody in California looks good. Somehow everybody in California is fit. They've got great hair. They've got great shoes. They've got great houses. They've got great cars. Everything looks beautiful. It's it's, uh, hyper-focused on image, on status, uh, on appearances, and Philippi was, was much the same way. Status was a big deal. The higher up you got in the status chain, the more uh, privileges you had, and this is not the way of King Jesus. He gave up his privileges and his status. He embraced the losses and the limitations of a fully human life. Though he was God, he accepted upon himself all of the, the constraints of being a human. And it's even simple things like being hungry or being tired or being thirsty, all the way to more, uh, I don't know, profound sadnesses, like like weeping at his friend's funeral. All, All of these realities that we face as human beings, Jesus, he laid down his privileges and his status and he embraced these. He did not cling to that which was his, his status as God Almighty. And instead, verses seven through eight, He gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. 
Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus. I went too far. I went too far. Sorry. Stop there at died a criminal's death on a cross. I got caught up in the emotion. So what, what must this king be like? Leave that back up. Where you at, Connor? My man. What must this king be like? Do you know any kings like this that don't assert their authority, that don't demand their way, and instead they lay it down? And, and not just laying down their preferences, their very life to die a criminal's death. He did not boast of his greatness or his accomplishments. He did not demand his way or demean his people. He went down so you could be lifted up. If you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to imitate Jesus, the invitation is to a life of self-sacrifice. To imitate King Jesus is to lay down your status, lay down your privilege, lay down your rights and your preferences for the sake of others. Let's bring some texture to verse 4 that we looked at last week. Don't look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. To put it real simply, the way of Christ, imitating Christ, the way is cruciform. It's shaped it's shaped like a cross. It's self-sacrifice for the sake of others. So to follow Christ will be to pay, take upon ourselves our own crucifixions, our own losses, our own limitations. And if we do so, we will enter into the joy of Christ himself. Because if we imitate him on the way down, we will continue imitating him on the way up. If you follow Christ down the mountain, you will follow him back up it. So verses 9 through 11, this is why I got excited. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor, gave him the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So verses six through eight invite us to imitate the way of Christ through self-sacrifice, and verses nine through 11 remind us that every crucifixion leads to resurrection in Christ. The way towards honor as citizens of heaven is following the way of Christ. You see some of the beautiful structure here. Verses 6 through 8 have a downward trajectory. And then verses 9 through 11 are going back up. It was through the king's willingness to lay down his own life that his true beauty was revealed. Irresistible beauty. Did, did you see what Paul said there at the end? Every being in all of the universe will bow its knee and declare that Jesus is Lord. So, you have to ask yourself, all of us do, do we desire to be in a place of honor and glory? You know, I, th I think about that, that Hamilton song, uh, I want to be in the room where it happens. If you don't know that song, I think it speaks so clearly to the desires of most humans. We want to be in that place of influence. We, we want to be in a place where we feel like our life matters. Do you long for a life of joy and confidence? Or the, like we sang earlier, that song, I Will Build My Life. Do you want to be able to, with integrity, sing that and say, I will not be shaken? I don't know if you guys know this, but we don't know what the next few months are going to look like. We don't know what the next year is going to look like. And that, you know, whatever. Are we still on the first wave of COVID? Is there going to be a second wave? Well, what's going to happen with the election? I don't know if you all are on Twitter. I highly recommend not being on it, but it was not a good morning for our current president. And who knows what is going to happen? And do you want to be the kind of person that can look into all of that uncertainty and with an integrity and confidence say, I will not be shaken? Do you long to share in the glory of Christ? 
Like, do you want to be in that room where billions of people? Did you see what it said? Every tribe, every tongue, every nation proclaiming that he alone is king. I was shook up this morning hearing drums, and the room was quite full for a socially distanced church auditorium, and hearing people sing, and like that was just some drums and a little bit of extra organ. What's it going to be like when there's billions and billions and billions of people? Some are singing in Spanish, and some in Mandarin, and some in languages that have been long forgotten. What will that sound like as the earth shakes, as everybody is crying out, Jesus is Lord? Do you want to be there? Do you want to be in that room when that happens? Do you want to join Christ? Do you see how this poetry, this song is appealing to some of the deepest desires we have as a human being? Do you want that? And if you want to go up, the invitation of Christ is to first go down. You cannot get to resurrection without crucifixion, suffering before glory. Paul is inviting us to embody the humble posture of Christ, lay down our rights and status for the sake of others. Two aspects of this stunned me in, in the text. One is really obvious and, and one, one is kind of implied, and it's a little bit nerdy. So here we are at the 11 o'clock service. So we're all right. Um, first, this probably may not sound too impressive. This was written in Greek. So it wasn't written in English. It was written in Greek. And maybe that doesn't seem like a big deal to you. Um, here's why it's a bit of a big deal. Uh, there are images and stylistic features of this text in the Greek that almost read like it should have been written in Hebrew. So Paul is Jewish. He was really good at Hebrew. It was probably his most comfortable language. Um, and you can tell as he's writing this, that he's steeped in Hebrew wisdom literature, that he's steeped in Hebrew imagery and stylistic stuff, um, and yet he writes it in Greek. Doesn't write it in Hebrew. He doesn't write it in Aramaic, the language that Jesus probably spoke. And so what's the big deal with that? Well, immediately, Christianity was a multi-ethnic religion. It was a decentralized, multinational religion. Paul relied on his Jewish background, but that was transformed by Christ, and he communicates in a language that these people would understand. Christianity, from day one, from the time of the apostles, it never demanded that everyone acts like Jewish priests or speak only Aramaic as Jesus did. Or it, it was just such a, it's one of the greatest evidences of the, the power of the Holy Spirit and the, the truthfulness of Christianity. And there was no centralized authority for hundreds and hundreds of years. Instead, it was spread rapidly from all, across all lines, all boundaries, all classes, all races, all statuses. Because Christ laid down his life for all. In the, in the very structure and language that's being used to write this, we see how widespread the gospel is, how wide the invitation is, how open to all it is. And it just makes me love the Bible, that you can see that underneath the text, the, the power and the breadth of the gospel. And so that, you know, you could read that and, and not see that or pay attention to that. But then in verses 10 through 11, it's made absolutely explicit. All people will come. Every knee would bow. Every language would confess Jesus is Lord. And this is so revolutionary for us because, you know, like, I love that we have kids in the room right now. We had a pregnant lady in the last service, which was, it feels like the good old days at Sojourn, right? Uh, you say pregnant lady. That's, that's our growth strategies, procreation, by the way. So that's slow and steady growth. Uh, and so it, it's, 
I think about dads. We have this new kid and how it's easy for some habits to change or you can lay down preferences when you have this new kid uh, because you love them so much. It's, it's easy to lay down our rights for those we like. I imagine when your children came, if you have children, things changed almost immediately for you and they did so joyfully because you, it's kind of easy for us to lay down our lives for those that look like us, that talk like us, that live like us. But if that's the only place we're laying down our rights, that is not the way of Christ. It's a faux Christianity. It's one that can look kind of like Christianity, but it's not, it's not the real thing. The way of Christ is the way of self-sacrifice. And think about where we stood with God prior to the coming of Christ. We were his enemies. We were dead in our sin. And, and it wasn't, he didn't just come to this certain group of people that had it figured out. He came to all of us and all of our broken messes. True Christianity lays down its priorities and preferences for the sake of something greater. So practically, what that means for us is we have to become a people that reject the notion of those people. Those people are like the they. I, I like talking to people about like conspiracy theories and outlandish stuff, but it's always they. Well, you know, they just want you to believe them. I'm like, who is they? Who are they? And all of us have those people well, you know, those people, they only move here to do this to our town. Or those people only want this. Or those people, almost always the ones who look different, who talk different, who eat different. And we have to see how embodied Paul's invitation here. And by embodied, I mean it's a way of life. It's not just truths that we confess. We're invited to live the way of Christ. And that means laying down our privileges and status to truly serve others not with mere words, but with our very lives, our, our actions. And it means we do that even for those people. And so, so it's worth checking in with yourself a minute and, and try to answer, who are those people for you? And you don't have to say it out loud because it'll make all of us uncomfortable, I suppose. Division and animosity are some of the original sins of the human race. So if you... If you think you don't have those people in your life, I think you're just participating in self-delusion. There, there's someone who's easy for us to hate, for all of us. What an opportunity many of us have to take Jesus' words to heart and to learn to love and pray for our enemies. Who is it easiest for you to keep at arm's length and dismiss? Where is there a barrier in your life you've yet to cross for the sake of the gospel? Where, where has it cost you nothing to follow Jesus? I saw, again, maybe I should just get off Twitter. Um, I saw somebody tweet this morning. Somebody mentioned, you know, there was, it was a pretty rough night of protests last night in uh, downtown Louisville. And I saw somebody tweet, um, it was so awful. My wife and I were so scared we were going to get stuck in traffic because of the protesters on the way home from dinner. So that they were having dinner on River Road in Louisville, and they were worried that the protests would make it difficult for them to get home at night. You just think about that for a second. Where is there a barrier in our lives we have yet to cross for the sake of the gospel? Something that we have not laid down or been unwilling to lay down. And I think this text provides us an opportunity to shift some of our reasons for doing so. Because at least in our church, 
man, people be shooting themselves to death. I don't know, you guys ever heard that phrase? There's something about our tribe of Christianity where we should and ought ourselves all the time. I should do this. I should do that. I should go here. I should. And have you noticed how that just makes you more tired and more guilty? You've been shouldn't on yourself to read the Bible for all these years. I should be reading more. I should be praying. And you ever notice how that doesn't compel you to do it? What if, what if we saw this sort of activity less as a function of Christian duty, like, you know, to appease an angry God, and more as a function of Christian identity, or even more so as something to, to fulfill the deepest longings of our soul? Do you desire to be in that room? Do you desire to have that kind of life, to be that kind of person? This is the way. And so if you find yourself stuck somewhere in your journey, if you find places in your soul in need of renewal, your invitation is to soak in these beautiful words of this prison poem and, and maybe let your imaginations be stirred. So I just want to read one section of it for you again, verses five through eight. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So here's the new mindset. If you want to become like Jesus, if you want to strengthen our unity as Christ's church, if you long to have a powerful witness to the watching world, if you want to live in the fullness of joy, imitate Christ. Pursue self-sacrificial relationships. Lay down your status and pick up your servant's towel. Lay down your crown, pick up your cross. Your imitation will lead to your transformation. So we remember now as we do every week that we can do this and to be filled with the desire to do this by calling our minds back to the night Jesus was betrayed. He took a loaf of bread and he blessed it and then he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the meal was over, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant sealed with the shedding of my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. And, what's so, and so this is like, it's weird again, right? You guys have these little communion cups or you should have grabbed one on your way in. If you need one, they're on the top of the sound booth. And notice that we're not called to simply repeat a mantra, or to have a phrase or information. We're given something to remember our status with God as citizens of heaven that we can taste, that we can smell, that we can touch. It's an experiential reality that we're invited to participate in. And so I invite you to lift up the first layer. This is so weird. Some people do this all the time. Here we go. I got it. It's something ordinary, it's something small. It doesn't taste bad, but it's, like, it's not like it's awesome either. And this is some of the mystery of our Christian faith. We take this and we eat it, remembering that Christ's body was given for you. And then we take the juice and we, we remember that our relationship with God is sealed by the shed, shedding of Christ's blood, not by your performance, not by your promises, but by the blood of Christ. So I invite you to drink and remember Christ's blood was shed for you. We receive communion to remember that God gave first. And in response to God's initiation, we give him our love and our lives. 
So after taking communion on your way out, if you'd like to bring a tithe or an offering, there's a box up front on back, or also in the back, and you can give online. Again, God gave first, so we give back to some of what he has entrusted to us. Uh, I will pray for us, and then you can sing along with the band. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android, where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.